This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting for Thursday, January 18th, the Too Cool for School edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. Uh, I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who's seven years old, and Leo, who is three. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I'm mom to Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who will be 15 next week, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14. Uh, today on our show, we're going to be talking to Anna Holbert, the author of a new book about child prodigies. Uh, she's going to talk to us about extraordinary children and their extraordinary accomplishments and what happens next, and about what those prodigies can tell us about raising ordinary children. We also have a question from a listener whose two-year-old son is constantly pushing his father away and saying, no, daddy. This one uh, ripped me to my core. Uh, in addition, we will have triumphs and fails. We'll have recommendations. And on Slate Plus, Rebecca and I will grill Carvel about his new job as an advice columnist. But let's start with triumphs and fails. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to go first? Yeah. Um, I had a really interesting experience this weekend where my son Teddy was uh, potentially like in a lot of trouble. Um and I kind of I'm going to call this a triumph because I dug really deep and just really tried to tap into what I remember about being his age and sort of was able to kind of like turn the situation around a little bit. So he had his performances of his school play this weekend and it all went great. And it's the first time he's ever been in a cast. It's the first time he's ever been in a musical or play. And uh, if either one of you have ever been. In performances like this, you know that when it's over, there is this like real like emotional psychic like letdown. A lot of kids get really depressed for a few days afterwards or they just they feel like a little bit like empty is sort of <laughs> the thing that I, I remember feeling when I was a kid in these situations. And um, so what happened after the play was over was that there was a cast party and a bunch of the kids hung out together. And then the next day they all had to go break down the set that was mandatory. So. Um, it was like Sunday and they all, you know, dropped Teddy off at school at noon and he's there and he had plans with his dad uh, in the mid afternoon and his brother was at my house with his girlfriend sort of waiting for Teddy to call them so they could go pick them up and bring them with their dads and Teddy just like completely went off the radar. He um, didn't call anyone. He wouldn't respond to any texts. Uh, he, I sent him a text and I was like, hey, give me a call. And I just got like this like exclamation point, and, like, nothing else. And um, a couple hours went by and I was just like, this isn't good. I really at this point, like I don't know a lot of the kids in the play. A lot of them are upperclassmen. And so um, 
I decided to do my like mom, Nancy Drewing, used to find my iPhone, figured out where he was, cross-referenced that address with the cast list and the play, and then looked, believe it or not, at like the tax map on my town website to find out like the adult name attached to that property so I could figure out whose kid, you know, which kid is only because like I I didn't know. Like it was one of those things. And he he had sent these sort of like slightly angry texts back saying like, I just want to be with my friends, leave me alone, and then like turned off his phone. And just so you know, like in no like uncertain terms, he is totally breaking the rules here. It's like the one rule that is like I have hard and fast with the kids and, you know, I give them a lot of freedom. They have they're they're encouraged to be independent is that they have to sort of just like uh, keep in touch. Let me know where you are. Respond to my text. Call me back if I tell you to. And for the most part, like as long as you're doing things that are like decent choices, you're going to have a lot of freedom. But he sort of violated all of that in this one uh, situation. So I was really struggling. And um, he had these plans with his dad. And his dad called me. And he's like, I'm going to kill him. Like, <laughs> he's, he's supposed to be here. He's like, my dad's visiting from Florida. He's supposed to be here. What is going on? And I was like, all right, I will go get him. <laughs> so I show up at a strange house. And I'm thinking like, this could be really bad. I could show up. He could be like, I don't know, smoking pot with some kids. He could be like alone with a girl. Like, I don't know what the situation is going to be. I show up. I knock on the door. This really nice mom opens the door and I immediately hear like 15 kids upstairs in the house somewhere like singing and dancing like really loudly. (laughs) And I realize like this is that thing where like these kids don't want to let this go. They don't want to let the experience go, this like mm. high, this like addictive performance experience. And Teddy is a freshman in high school and it's his first time ever doing this. And he is experiencing mm. this like crash post play and he wants nothing more than for this experience to go on and not to let it go because he knows as soon as it does, he's going to be like devastated. So I channel all that. I, I choose not to embarrass him in front of this family. And I say, hey, I'm Teddy's mom. Um, He's not picking up his phone. I'm just wondering. He has a plans. We, I got to pick him up. And the mom was super nice. And he came downstairs and he kind of looked at me sideways like, are you going to yell at me in front of this nice lady? And I didn't. And uh, he got in the car and we're driving along and it's like silent. <laughs> and then I pull over. And I'm like, couple things. First, you got to call your dad and apologize to your dad and just tell your dad what you've been up to. So he calls his dad. He's like, I'm really sorry. Just wanted to be with my friends. You know, the play was over and we all just wanted to be together. And, you know, here, here's dad on the phone talking and he hangs up. And I'm like, Teddy, here's the thing. Like, if you had led with that earlier today, like you would still be there. If you had, you know, uh, just done the communication you were supposed to do, I'm sure your dad and I would have agreed that you could do this thing with your friends. And he's like, I know, I know, I know, I know. So we drive on. He agrees he's going to go to his dad's, drop him off at his dad's. I asked to speak to his dad. His dad comes outside and I'm like, listen, I think this is one of those moments that could be like important for us as parents to really like decide together what we're going to do here. Because my instinct, like my immediate reaction is like, take away the phone, take away all these privileges or whatever. But then when I show up at the house and he's literally singing and dancing songs from Bye Bye Birdie with like 15 other teenage kids and I realize that like this has been a real high for him and we really need to like talk to him about that and like how to manage those feelings and then maybe like give him parole and not prison time for this infraction (laughs) and his dad you know to my wonder and surprise kind of agreed um and so we just sort of tapped our own what it was like being teenagers feelings we ended up having a really great conversation with teddy 
you know, granted, he does pulls this shit again. He's going to be like really in trouble. But I don't know. It felt like a triumph to me because it felt like one of those times where you have that instinct to yell, to put the hammer down. And you just know in your heart that it's not the right thing to do. It's not the right moment to do it in. And it's actually a moment to set boundaries and to create, you know, shapes and, and colors around experiences. I don't know. It felt really good to me. It felt like a triumph. You might be listening to this both and thinking like I'm a pushover and a total failure, but it didn't feel that way. So I'm calling it a triumph. I, I definitely think that's a triumph. And I think it probably would have been a fail to treat going to somebody's house while their mom is there and singing the songs from the musical with the rest of the cast as though it were the same as like going to a crack den. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> like you, you do have to, den. to some degree. You, <laughs> isn't that where people do crack? Where do you do your crack? Yeah, that's yeah. Well, Under I, I do a bridge, usually, and the crack vestibule. Yeah, that's where I, <laughs> no, no, I, we have, we have a special den for it. <laughs> the it's great. It's got couches and a TV. It's a very comfortable den. <laughs> Wood paneling. The crack rumpus yeah, wood room. paneling. <laughs> blankets, old blankets. Because <laughs> when you do your crack, you want to be cozy. <laughs> in any event, oh uh, it got does, weird. It does. <laughs> in any event, it does seem it does seem important to sort of respect the substance of what he's doing, as well as like the fact that he failed to you know properly call you and let you know where he was and that he was going to be late and that stuff. Like those procedural things are important, but the fact that he was doing something completely safe and frankly nerdy is also important, and you have to factor that into your judgment when you do the consequence, right? I, I think so. I mean, I think I thought it was sweet as hell, frankly, and I just felt like part of me was like, I don't want to taint this. I want to actually encourage the social part of the behavior. What we want to discourage is the very specific thing around communication. And I think the way to do that wouldn't be to shut down the importance of the experience he was having. It's to talk about that one specific thing. And so we kind of just made it about that little slice. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I would say that when kids get to be teenagers, like it's really important to um, be super specific about the behavior that you're trying to like sort of develop or teach and not to take away other things as punishment. Like, I think there's a tendency to be like, well, because you made me feel this bad way, you now have to experience some other bad thing. But I think when there's, I mean, I don't know if we ever, if that's ever (laughs) right to do, although I, but I think definitely by the time kids are teenagers and they have a certain amount of autonomy and a certain sense of the reality of consequences and what are false consequences imposed by a parent and which are real, real ones. Then I think a lot of the parenting is about, um, you know, staying away from this feeling of like, well, you made me feel bad. So I need to take something from you so that you feel bad. I think everything has to be very much connected to the behavior as it is. And we have this running thing too. Ezra doesn't do this anymore, but we have this, our kids keep their location on, on their phones, um, and so we can always tell where they are, which is great because then we know he's walking home from school. Is he halfway there? Blah, 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 blah. But he he resisted that for the first few months of that. And he would turn his location off. And then he'd be like, oh, my phone, my battery died or whatever. Like <laughs> we didn't have reception and we were just like – and so at that point, it got to a point where like if you do not keep your location on, you will not have a phone. That is the end of that story. And then after that, he miraculously changed. <laughs> but it was you know like really making sure that we tied it to the point of the thing so that you know part of your contract is that we as parents need to know where you are and that you're safe if you're out in the world. 
All right. Carvel, what about you? You got a triumph or a fail? I have a triumph that came that began as a fail. Those listeners to the show will remember that several weeks ago I pulled on Christmas I pulled what I was calling an Aunt Gertie, which is the act of buying clothing for children that is like completely mismatched with who they are, either in style or size. I was able to nail the style stuff for both my kids, but I overestimated or rather like I wrongly estimated what their growth patterns would be over the next three to four months. So I got like these larger sizes than they wanted to for all this, as they would call it, dope clothing. And uh, they were really mad about that. And like, I know they're going to grow into this stuff, but they were just like, what is this? Like, this is too big. I can't wear this. I, you know, it looks like a dress. So, so on and so forth. And, um, and the, so on Monday, one of the things that I had gotten for Georgia was um, a thrasher hoodie, which the kids are wearing again nowadays. And, uh, she was like, it's too, it's too big, it's oversized, blah, blah, blah. But then on Monday, she decided to wear it. She wore it out when we went out for MLK Day and spent time together and did all this stuff. And she looked really good in it. And her brother was like, wow, that looks really good. Like, that outfit is amazing. Like, Georgia, like, that's the best outfit you've ever had, like, so on and so forth. And then she was like, and I was like, yeah, it looks really good. Like, it fits. Like, it's, I was right. You know, I was like, we were playfully, like, I was playfully, like, celebrating. And, um... And then I was like, are you going to wear it to school? She's like, I, I can't wear it to school, Dad. And I'm like, why not? She's like, my school isn't fashion forward enough for, for the oversized hoodie with the tights, with the pink vans. Like, my school's a little more basic. I might wear this to something special, but I feel like if I do the oversized hoodie to my school, that's just going to be too advanced for these kids. And I was like, wow, I didn't know there were... I disagree with that level of like fashion nuance, but she sees it and she feels so in some ways she was saying this outfit is too good from at least as I chose to hear it to be soiled. Literally too cool for school. Sorry. I had literally. To say that. <laughs> yes, you did have to say that. Yes, it was literally too cool for school. So I felt a tiny bit of redemption. There's still lingering items that the kids haven't worn. Um, and so I'm just going one item, one item at a time. And when I see the items busted out and brought into the rotation, then I'll feel a level of success. Nice. I have a uh, minor Sunday planning triumph. It was Sunday and we were all in the house and we were like, we can't just, it was too cold to be outside for any length of time, but we were like, we can't just stay in the house all day. We're going to go insane and kill each other. Uh, and me and my wife came up with the idea like, oh, we'll take them to the Brooklyn Museum, but we have to get to the subway and that's a schlep and it's freezing cold and they don't want to go to the subway. And so we were going to go get lunch on the way to the subway. Uh, and what we did was we went to the food hall uh, near the subway and the food hall was the best possible place to go because then Eliza could get some pizza and my wife could get some Vietnamese food and, and Leo could get like a – he wanted a ham and salami sandwich. So I got like a giant ham and salami sandwich and he had half of it and I had half of it because he didn't have like a regular <laughs> – side. they only had one that was like as big as his arm literally. Um, and then we were leaving the food hall and there's like a store in the mall attached to the food hall that sells like little paper notebooks shaped like bunnies. That's like basically the only thing they sell in this store. I have no idea why anyone would want that store or how it could stay in business, but my wife and my daughter could spend very happily could spend 45 minutes in this store looking at the little paper knickknacks. Um, and me and Leo did the game of running races where, um, 
you know, whenever we're in a public space, like I point to an object and I'm like, okay, how fast can you get to that thing? And then back. And then he goes and runs over and back and he can do that like for 45 minutes, no problem. And so we had a good time <laughs> running races. I, I do not participate in the races. I'm the sort of timekeeper of the races. Um, and they got to futz around with cute little paper knickknacks. Um, and then there was a big department store attached that they wanted to look at the makeup counter. And so Leo and I rode up and down the escalators. And there were so many escalators in this <laughs> department store. We literally, like, we could go up six escalators and then down six escalators. And we went, like, across to the other side of the floor and rode the other set of escalators. And um, by the time we were all done with all of this stuff, then we had had a totally satisfying Sunday excursion. And we could skip the Brooklyn Museum and we just went right home. And it was a great great day. Um, so that was my triumph of not having to schlep the kids all the way on the subway to an art museum where they would probably have lasted about 20 minutes um, and instead to get to ride a ton of escalators. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question you would like us to tackle, leave us a message at 424-255-7833, or you can email us at momanddadatslate.com. Have you checked out Slate's Represent podcast? Every week, smart and creative people join Slate culture writer Aisha Harris to discuss the latest films, TV shows, and happenings in Hollywood. Download and subscribe to Slate Represent on your podcatcher of choice for thoughtful conversations about race, gender, sexuality, and more. With critics and thinkers like Slate's own Jamel Bowie and Turner Classic Movies host Tiffany Vasquez. If you're looking for a place to start, try the January 5th episode about the Me Too moment and the great American baking show winner Valerie Lomas, whose season was suddenly canceled when one of the judges on the show was implicated in sexual misconduct. Again, that's Slate Represent wherever you get your podcasts. On Slate Plus today, Rebecca and I are going to ask Carvel why he thinks he's qualified to write a parenting advice column. To hear that segment and another like it every week and to get this and all your Slate podcasts with no ads, sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for your first year. You help cover the cost of producing this and your other favorite shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of our podcasts and a ton of other great benefits. So if you would like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to slate.com slash plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. Our guest today is Anne Holbert. Uh, she's the literary editor of The Atlantic Magazine, and she's the author of a new book, Off the Charts, The Hidden Lives and Lessons of American Child Prodigies. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Uh, about extraordinarily talented children uh, in American history uh, that comes to some surprising conclusions. And thanks a lot for being with us. What made you want to write about child prodigies? Well, my last book was a book about child-rearing experts over the 20th century who, with all kinds of shaky evidence but lots of confidence, told parents how to rear off-the-charts children. But I finished that book and felt in an odd way, I hadn't really written about children. And I'd written a lot more about theory than about practice. And as I came to these conclusions, I was also in the moment of having my own kids face 
the college gauntlet and thought, this would be a particularly good moment to actually try to find a way to write about children and their experience of the early achievement pressure that seemed to be part of the idea of rearing children in our time. So I thought to myself, the idea of rearing super children had been in the minds of many of the experts I'd looked into, and I would turn to that angle on the question myself. So some of the kids who you write about are, are very well known, like Bobby Fisher, the, the chess player, and Shirley Temple. But um, tell us about one of the other kids, one of the children maybe who you didn't know about before you started researching this book. I think I would say, in a way, the pair of stories that took me most, most by surprise was a pair of literary girls in the 1920s. And part of the way I came upon them is one of the ways I approached the book was I wanted to be writing about prodigies who had stirred up debates and been a reason that other American parents were thinking about how best to raise children and what to think about amazing promise in early childhood. And this was a moment when sort of war-weary Americans were eager to be inspired by children. And there really was a kind of epidemic of interest in literary girls, um, which I had known nothing about. I didn't think that literature was really a realm in which you think of children being prodigies at all. But two girls, one a poet, Natalia Crane, and the other a novelist, Barbara Follett, um, emerged into the public. Natalia writing poems that people actually thought were written by adults. That wasn't quite true of Barbara. Um, part of the allure of her amazingly accomplished book was that it clearly was by a child, but a child who had a kind of literary prowess that few children do. Uh, and just to watch their approach to their art and the response of adults to it was, to me, something I had not expected at all. The the, the story of the child prodigy who grows up to, to be a sort of disappointing adult and who has a troubled life after their early success. That's sort of a, a stereotype of, a, of, of what we imagine happens to child prodigies. Is that borne out by, by the people that you studied? Did they often grow up and have very difficult lives? They, I think it is fair to say that the, pretty much everyone I write about didn't have easy lives. But I think I definitely came away feeling that the, that storyline is kind of an unfair storyline um, in that it serves no child well to think that, you know, very precocious achievement necessarily spells doom. Um, I think in the case of many of them, uh, the expectation that they might fail was one, certainly for Norbert Wiener, one of the first children I write about, um, a math genius who went to Harvard very young. For him, discovering that this was what some people thought about prodigies, which was very much the case at the turn of the 20th century, was utterly devastating. Um, he went into a deep depression. This is when he's about 12, and he discovers that he's not going to be considered for Phi Beta Kappa at Tufts, where he already is a college student, because the people on the committee believe that the auguries for a prodigy are so grim. And this has never occurred to this amazingly brilliant, curious boy. And um, it truly throws him into a complete tailspin. Um, and I've sort of taken my cue from him in a way of thinking that, yes, there are many things about an 
early and accomplished and stressful life that may well spell trouble in adulthood, but the idea that it inevitably does is surely wrong. When I think about all the parents, the question we get most frequently about children and their practices is when should we force our kids to do something and when should we let them stop? That's like the big question that we get. Not, I'm not talking about just prodigies, but I'm talking about like my son plays violin and he said he was into it and then, but he doesn't want to practice and now he won't practice. And should I force him or should I let it go? I know I wish my mom had forced me because then I, now I'd know music and I don't. Do you have any insight on, on that that you could share with our listeners? Uh, you know, I guess I think Probably the the honest answer is not really, having experienced exactly the same thing <laughs> myself. I think one of the things one tends to find about genuine prodigies as opposed to hyper-overachieving children is the degree to which there is a kind of really pretty obsessive drive, usually at work in the child, but that doesn't. And mm. I did discover this particularly with the, la, the boy I write about at the end of the who is a, a piano prodigy, even that obsessive drive doesn't mean that there isn't a huge amount of adult duress that also sort of tends to compound and help structure the discipline. And finding the right balance between helping a child make the most of an interest and turning it into a complete ordeal is one that I think probably varies from child to child and from family to family, mm. um, you know, how mm. much it can fit in the culture of your own family to just have something that is a pretty strict discipline that you expect of your kid and that fits into the other expectations you have of them and doesn't seem like it's about an agenda that they find no meaning in. Um, I think simply waiting around for a child to be constantly enthusiastic about something that does take disciplined work is likely not to end up having them reach particularly high levels, which are then themselves, I think, a fuel for further work at something. You know, seeing yourself make mm. progress is a great mm -hmm. prod. Now, does your book uh, exclusively focus on child prodigies who had one outstanding talent, or do you look at sort of the the types of prodigies who have choices, because I know that both kinds exist. And I think that we tend to focus on the, you know, single, the single talent that that, you know, pops out above all others prodigies, like the kid who's incredible at piano at a very young age or singing or maths. Um, but aren't these kids, I mean, don't they often have a lot of abilities that uh, we don't hear about, and and is that part of the issue? Is that is that we're so hyper focused on the one thing that that sticks out that maybe makes them well known in their communities or sometimes even famous? That's a really interesting question. I I do think part of what I'm doing in the book is is writing about prodigies and the debates that they end up stirring up, and certainly, for example, the first two boys I write about. Um, Norbert Wiener and a young boy named William James Sidis, who were both at Harvard, you know, as extremely young boys. They were really good at all kinds of things. They learned lots of languages. They were great at math. They, you know, Norbert was writing a philosophic paper at 10, which I read, which was kind of amazing. And in the end, they actually did pursue a lot of those interests. And that was part of what fascinated Americans about them. Um, and because the sort of generalist vision of genius was the one that 
people tended to feel was an important and useful one at that point. Most of the other kids I write about, I think, you know, people would say about Bobby Fischer, you know, if he had not grown up in Brooklyn, the chess champ, you know, capital of the world and had been in California, he would have been a swimming champion or so I do think there's absolutely a sort of contextual force at work in many um, of the cases of amazing talent that present themselves. Um, But I do think there's often a reason that a prodigy tends to excel in one thing, which is that to really, really master something quite young takes a huge amount of time, no matter how talented you are, and there's only so Mm. many hours in a day. Um, And parents of overachieving children in general do feel that the expectation that kids are going to be extremely good at lots of things is one that I think is a little more prevalent now. You know, you want to have the good student, the great athlete, and the one who's really good at some form of music. And I think the sort of omni-potential, which is, I think, the way the experts refer to it, is something that um, has its own downside. You, you touched on this just now, but something that you, you uh, touch on in your book several times is the connection between child prodigies and, and the way that, that we push contemporary children to show these great achievements, to, to have a successful life and to get into a good college and things like that. What do you think looking at prodigies has to teach us about uh, raising ordinary children, about uh, both, you know, is there things we can learn about having children who are accomplished and successful and are there things that we should avoid that, that are there, you know, darker lessons from child prodigies? I do think so. Um, I mean, I think in some way the real focus on early achievement, which I think is a fact of our time, um, tends to make childhood seems sort of instrumental in a way that I'm not sure we mean it to. That is, we're always looking at it as the key to some future that lies ahead. And I, in a way, found that, in a way, just by focusing on childhood as a time in which children are capable of learning and do whatever they're learning amazingly quickly is something that we can learn, we can sort of stand to focus on as parents. It's just childhood itself is childhood, and it is an occasion for great mastery of lots of things, even if those things aren't going to make you, you know, get you on the front page of your local newspaper. And I think it it is also a sort of reminder of how much children's playful in the sense of they're not so ends directed as we adults tend to be. Absorption in things is something that I think is easy maybe not to value as much as we should value um, just in in thinking about childhood. I found that one of the things about the prodigy trajectory is that adolescence is pretty much universally a crisis um, for these children. And it is because Suddenly, they are thinking in sort of newly self-aware ways about what they're doing and why they're doing it and whether they want to keep doing it. And I feel like that's also, for me, was a very useful reminder of how much of what one hopes will emerge from a childhood is a sense of kind of self-direction 
um, which again, I think in our culture, we can kind of lose um, a little bit of sight of. Then simply the myths around child prodigies that either, you know, they're going to go on to become geniuses or they're going to flame out and be, you know, hopeless basket cases. I think the ways in which neither of those necessarily happens at all and that no trajectory that I wrote about is anything like smooth or straight or speedy all the time also seem to me to be sort of lessons writ really large that for us parents who are sort of bringing up children in a time when it feels like everything has to go right all the time and there's a kind of lockstep vision of the high-performing childhood that's going to guarantee the high-performing adulthood. It's good to throw a wrench in that vision, I think. Anne Halbert, thank you so much for being with us. Anne Halbert is the author of Off the Charts, The Hidden Lives and Lessons of American Child Prodigies. Thanks so much for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, time now for a question from a listener. This one came to us through our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Uh, It's being read by Slate editorial assistant Rachel Hampton. Hi, I have a question for you about my two-year-old son. He will often push my husband away and say, no, daddy, for example, when my husband walks into the room. My husband finds this demoralizing. This isn't a case of a distant father versus present mother. We both work part-time and share parenting equally. We realize this is likely a phase and will pass eventually, but do you have any suggestions to help in the short term? I've tried telling him off and that it should be nice to his daddy, but it doesn't seem to be working so far. Thanks. Well, I've certainly been there. Carvel, <laughs> have you been there? <laughs> <laughs> I would hate I hate to admit that I have been there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I mean I, I it, it's it is very painful for the parent to experience this. And it's very unnerving for the other parent who's not experiencing this because they feel like there's, there's something happening that I don't know about and I, I need to manage this situation. And th- the reason it's painful for both the adults is because there's a feeling of needing to manage this, to respond to it in such a way that the outcome is different. And when I hear this, <clears throat> given the context that the father is there, is loving, is present, um, and that the mother is there and loving and present and that the child is young – I don't think that there is anything that the parents can or can't do to like personally re-manipulate this so that this happens. This doesn't happen. My experience is that this comes and goes. Um, one thing that I think I tended to whenever this happened, and I don't remember a particular time necessarily uh, when it, when it was like an everyday thing, it'd be like around certain events. Like it'd be around like, bedtime or story time or bath time like there'd be one thing where like the kid would prefer one parent over another and that would be that would that would like just break my little heart and i'd you know feel all kinds of ways about it 
But the one thing I would always do in situations like that is like try first generally back off <laughs> actually. Um, and because like trying to f- make something happen, but then with kids, I always find you can sort of enter the side door. Like I try to find something that the kid really likes, likes so much that they genuinely won't care which parent it is that is doing it because they really like it. And then I try to see if I can do that just to have some, um, interaction with the kid that isn't about me trying to like, isn't about this thing about, you know, so I don't know. Like, I think that's what I try to do to like navigate through and, and um, kind of like continue to attend to the relationship with my child. But the overall view here is that this is, unless there is a significant problem, which there's no way to tell from this letter that there is, then this is normal within the realm of like, toddler logic and um and so it will come and go the other thing that i think came up a lot with me and joe is that and i don't i there's no way to know if this is happening too in this relationship but i just know that one of the crazy dynamics that i observed and experienced was that there was a feeling that even though i was a stay-at-home dad there was a feeling that joe was doing everything that that it felt to her like that because of a wide variety of things, which we can spend a whole episode on, but it felt that way. And so I was always plagued with this feeling that I, I wasn't doing enough or that I couldn't do enough or that whatever amount I did wasn't going to be enough. And so when the kid would do something like that, when the kid would like put extra pressure on me, which then would put extra pressure on Joe, that would put pressure on that dynamic. Cause then I would feel like I couldn't even help with this. And like, Joe would really want me to like help with this. Cause she feels exhausted and has done so much and like the bath time or whatever. And then the kids don't even want me to do that. And so here's yet another thing that she has to do on her own. That was really hard. And I don't know if that came from me or from her or some combination of us, but that was a really difficult dynamic to navigate. And I didn't like talking about it because it made me feel personally really guilty because I did have some vague, like, ever-present guilt about something that I don't fully understand to this day. But I feel like if the, if that is a dynamic in your relationship, it would be helpful to talk about it plainly and clearly as a way of navigating through that. Because you don't want a natural, basic toddler behavior to exacerbate and sort of sow dissent in a larger relationship, which is something that can happen. So that's what I think about that. Yeah, the one thing um, I, I would add to that is – like the letter writer says her husband finds this demoralizing and like of course you fucking find it demoralizing it's your beloved <laughs> child is like pushing you and saying no daddy like how could that not be demoralizing at the same time i was able to sort of get a handle on the feeling of demoralization by remembering that my kid behaves at that age my kids both behaved the exact same way about a pair of pajamas that they like fine but didn't want to wear Mm. and because they wanted to wear the other kind of pajamas. Like, they wanted the pajamas with fire trucks, but those pajamas are in the laundry, and so I am making them wear the pajamas with sailboats, and those are not the pajamas that they want, and the level of angst about that was exactly the same as the level of angst about, like, not being with the parent that you want to be with at that particular moment. Um and thinking of myself as like a pair of pajamas, the disfavored pair of pajamas at that particular moment was sort of helpful. Like 
if a regular human being says to you, no, I don't want to see you, go away, that person is really behaving angrily towards you and you really have an issue in your relationship. But if a two-year-old says that to you, it literally just means he's not in the mood right now because he was hoping to see his mom. And mm-hmm. um, realizing that and like realizing that helped me not to feel demoralized, helped me to be more chill about it. And then being chill about it is the only way you and the kid are going to get through this. Like yeah. saying, either saying, Oh, okay. You want mommy right now? She's over there. You go see mommy. Or depending on the circumstances saying, I know mommy's so great. Wouldn't it be great if she were here? Unfortunately, she's not here. I'm the only one who's here. What should we do? Should we read a book? Um, if, if you can maintain that level of chill, then it won't calm the kid down right away, but at least it like gives you a way that the two of you can get through this while you wait for the two-year-old to outgrow this particular phase. That's all. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, because it's never, ever worked with a two-year-old to, you know, the more angstier you get, the more angstier they're going to get about you. I mean, that's just the way that it is. I mean, they, you know, two-year-olds, like you said, are very tactile. It could just be that daddy's face is scratchy. It could just, it could Mm -hmm. be a million things that just, you know, Mm -hmm. feel weird or sound weird. Maybe daddy talks too loud. Maybe daddy hugs too tight. And they get over it. But uh, the surest way to make sure they don't get over it is to signal what a big deal it is to you. <laughs> They're going through this phase. And like you said, with the pajamas, like if you make them wear the pajamas they don't want to wear, they're going to not want to wear them even more. So I agree 100% with Gabe on this. The feelings that the dad has are fine to have, but learn how to telegraph a chillness around them and say, yeah, I want mommy too. And then both of you tackle mommy together. How about that? And mm-hmm. make it like a group <laughs> exercise in preferring mommy. And then next thing you know, you and your two-year-old are going to be on the same team preferring mommy. Um, there are a lot of ways to navigate it, but I think resistance and frustration and sadness and telegraphing that to a two-year-old are the opposite of what you should do here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, Good luck uh, helping your husband regain his chill. Uh, Time now. (laughs) Sorry. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's Recipe for Adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. Time now for recommendations. Carvel, do you recommend something? And if so, what? I do. This Maybe this will help. I recommend something that we, my daughter and I, recently discovered, which is Googling baby donkeys. So we have a running thing. <laughs> Wasn't expecting it to go that way. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I'm full of surprises. So like we, Georgia likes to keep track of various cute baby animals. Who doesn't? That's the best thing ever. But she was unaware of the the bizarre and fascinating cuteness of baby donkeys. Like really, I recommend that for everyone. Do it now. Do it always. Do it early and often. Google baby donkeys and share the pictures with your kids. They're really amazing. That's what I'm recommending. I'm definitely going to really do that. That's a really good recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to get out of here. I got something to do. Immediately. Uh, Rebecca, what do you recommend? 
Uh, I recommend uh, flipping the what did you do in school today conversation to something we've been doing the last few months. And I didn't really realize it was a thing until it had so firmly become a thing that I realized it's now a thing, um, which is that and my son Henry started it. He comes home with what he calls K-bombs, like boring facts that he learned in school that day. And he thinks it's funny just to like <laughs> bore us with these facts. He's like, I'm going to drop a K-bomb on you, mom. K, by the way, standing for mm. knowledge, of course. Um Mm-hmm. So his love for these K-bombs has sort of turned into a bit of a challenge, which is to bring home something you learned in school and then try to stump your parents about, you know, did you did you know X, Y, or Z? Or do you know what the leading import is, or, you know, to a specific country? Or did you know mm-hmm. that on the Silk Road they transported this kind of good? And what it's really done in our house to have this sort of K-bomb game in the what did you learn in school conversation instead of what did you do in school conversation is it has given the kids a reason to at least pay attention to one thing <laughs> when they're <laughs> in school that day so that they'll be able to contribute to this little game we play of trying to like stump the old people. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just been a really fun way to reframe the what did you do today conversation, um, the what did you learn today. But of course, we call it K-bombs. That's the way we've branded it. But I, I have been thinking about it a lot and just even asking the question that way, I think, makes a big difference. The, the what did you learn it it really helps them dig beyond that uh nothing answer which is what you will always get when you say how was school today what did you do you'll always hear "Eh, nothing Mm -hmm. you'll always hear that Mm -hmm. but if they're challenged to have a fact a k-bomb as it were they will bring one home that's a good one love it i'm gonna recommend a new section on the slate.com website uh slate launched its brand new design uh this week And part of that redesign involves the introduction of a new section called Human Interest. Uh, It's about life, relationships, family. uh, But in particular, there is stuff about parenting and kids that is funny and interesting and cool in a way that I am really excited about and haven't seen elsewhere. Uh, There's a feature asking kids about their parents' work-life balance. The first one features the son of BuzzFeed editor-in-chief Ben Smith reporting Mm. on his dad's internet usage and cell phone usage. Uh, It's pretty amazing. Um, There's a lot of other really cool parenting stuff, including a new parenting advice column uh, written by two of the great parenting advice givers of our time, Nicole Cliff from The Toast and our very own Carvel Wallace. Uh, So if you... Are interested in getting some more advice from Carvel and some advice from the great Nicole Cliff? Um, check it out. It's on Slate.com. The section is Human Interest. And that's our show. Uh, if you have a question that you would like us to tackle, you can call us at uh, 424-255-7833 or send an email to momanddadatslate.com. You can tell us what you thought of the show on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash momanddadarefighting. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For uh, Rebecca Lavoie and Carvel Wallace, I'm Gabriel Roth. We'll be back next week.